This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 160 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Monty Roberts University. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of the Horse Radio Network, and today we have two people that do different things for both ends of the horse. This is Debbie Lauks, and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. Thanks for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 1st and the 15th of the month. I have my producer today, Jen. How are you, Jen? Hello, Debbie. I am doing Fair to Midland today. Fair to Midland. Fair hey, to we Midland. have a place called Midland that's close by to us. So, you know, anytime hey, you want to visit. Stop, I'll stop by for tea. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> <laughs> did, did anybody it, ever say Fair to Midland? to you when you were growing up? Yes. Is that a phrase you heard? It was a phrase. Yeah. But you know, we're so full of phrases out here. I, I don't know. Are you too? Or is that, we, is it we funny had, what it... We had our special ones and Fair to Midland was one that we had. Yes. You know, I do a lot of business with, you know, globally. So I end up talking to a lot of Germans uh, for one season and a lot of um, uh, Polish or South Africans or Australians. And I found that I used to think that they had their expressions a lot, you know, like mm-hmm. the Irish, right? You know, mm-hmm. and then I realized, no, 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 we have all the weird expressions. We're like the melting pot for expressions. And if somebody doesn't, you know, English is the second language mm-hmm. to tr- to listen to ourselves talk is ridiculous. You know, all the silly, <laughs> the silly little expressions that like fair to Midland, you know, what, it, what is that? You know, if you're Polish and you're struggling with your English. Don't use that phrase. Confuse the person on the other end. Yes, I see. Or or you have to go around, you know, explaining yourself all the time, you know, which sort of defeats the purpose of having those cute little expressions. But anyway, it it is a privilege, though. It is a privilege to meet these people from all over the world. And, um, you know, there's there's people that have come and gone through the household uh, growing up at the Roberts household that have really expanded our minds. And uh, this is going to be a fun interview today because one of the kids that grew up on the farm is Philip Rawls. And anybody who knows the Rawls family, uh, Father Rawls and Philip Rawls, and now he's he has a couple of kids coming along. Um, it's really a, a legendary family in the Western reigning world. So we're happy to have him. And then another gentleman who worked in the racing industry down here, but it's uh, it's a doctor, a veterinarian. Um, who has found a specialty and moved east uh, and created the Horseman's Lab. And I'm excited to introduce, you know, some more natural ways of parasitic control. So it'll be All our health section. What What is old is new again. Yes. That's right. So I'm excited to hear all about horse poo and uh, taking care of it in an appropriate <laughs> way so we don't have parasite loads in our horses. And right. I'm really excited to hear from from Philip to hear about how yeah. he, growing up on on uh, on the farm there. But before we do that, we're going to hear from our title sponsor, Monty Roberts University. Imagine if you could take Monty to the barn with you. Watch and learn as he addresses each challenge with your horse and answers your questions too. You head to the arena and you work on each new lesson, knowing Monty's there to encourage you, all with violence-free, tried-and-true methods. 
After all, he's been helping train horse lovers all his life. With his online university, you could be like Kathy, a retired teacher who just bought her first horse. Recently, I went to a tack shop to look for a smaller halter. I'm 61, just purchased my 14 hands POA the day after my birthday, just a few weeks ago, after never having had a horse. And yes, that's crazy, but as a retired teacher who never had a hobby other than teaching, I decided to go for it. My hubby and I have taken lessons this past year, but I really longed for a relationship with a horse. Um, The only other experience I'd ever had was to ride a horse in Philly, Pennsylvania, my hometown, when I was 16, and I got bucked off. And that was it (laughs) until I was 61. Um, Well, the owner of this tax shop, um, this is Precious Lady, 84-year-old lady, gave me a copy of this magazine, Equine Monthly. And the article I read in it was Horses Are Biofeedback Beings. And it was just so interesting. I really felt like I just found a pot of gold when I read it because in it, it talked about Monty's online university and that I could have access to 575 videos for $10 a month. And before that, I was just searching YouTube for everything I could find. But truthfully, that's just a pain. Um, I love that the uni videos are concise and they're in order. Um, They have extra notes and a quiz. And I just can't thank you enough for the huge blessing of your online university. It really has changed my life and I will never be the same. Um, I've had my horse Jack now for seven weeks and Thanks to the videos, I've done join up with him, and it really worked like a dream. Uh, I had to do it in an arena, but it still worked. Thanks to Monty's lessons and the cues and the hand signals, um, the ability to watch the lessons over and over on demand is incredible. So I also want to thank you so very much for making the online university affordable for this retired teacher. Thank you so much for all that you do for everyone who really wants to love a horse. Kathy. Dr. John Bird, the owner of Horseman's Laboratory, has a lifetime of experience with horses. As a child, until entering college, he showed horses in pleasure and rating classes. During college, Dr. Bird developed an interest in running quarter horses that included breeding, owning, and racing in eight states. He graduated from the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine and was selected for the first large animal medical residency at the University of Florida in 1977. During his junior year, he received the Illinois Standard Bread Breeders Award for the student most interested in equine medicine. As an equine medicine practitioner in California for 13 years, Dr. Bird served as ex officio member of the Board of Directors of the Pacific Coast Quarter Horse Racing Association, where he also served as the organization's official sales veterinarian. In addition, Dr. Bird frequently officiated as veterinarian for horse shows sponsored by the management of the Orange County Fairgrounds in Costa Mesa, California. Dr. Bird's extensive experience with horses led him to observe how a horse's health could impact performance. And out of that, Horseman's Laboratory was established in 1993. Well, welcome, Dr. John Bird and Monty Roberts. I'm glad to have you both on the phone. How are you? Great. Thank you very much for uh, having me. I appreciate this very much. I'm having fun uh, in California here. Yeah, this is old home week a little bit. Dr. Bird, I know, was uh, a practitioner in California. 
California under that veterinary license. Uh, let's see, you you did a lot of work in the Costa Mesa, Southern California area. Am I right, Dr. Bird? That's correct. Also did some work at Los Alamitos at the racetrack there for poor horses. That's right. That's yeah. right. We will have introduced you as a member of the board back then of the Pacific Coast Quarter Horses Racing Association. So you two have some some definite equestrian business uh, in common, too. Um, I wanted to get you two together, though, because we do get a lot of questions these days about um, resistance in the warming business. Um, and Dr. Bird has taken that on and done a, an amazing thing for that. We're going to hear about that. And also about pasture management, too. And, Dad, I know that you're, gosh, uh, you have a few years in that business of pasture management and a few opinions. And I know that it, that can be a regional thing. It can be a regional thing by, um, by soil makeup and weather. But I thought it'd be interesting to put you two together on the phone to talk about the whole um, digestive system of a horse and how we can improve their health and not make this a veterinary medicine episode necessarily. But we all know that health affects behavior. And this is Horsemanship Radio. So I was hoping you could help us with our horsemanship that way. Well, I think Dr. Bird, this is Monty speaking. I think Dr. Bird ought to know that I first met Mr. Vessels in 1948. And um, we just had a thing called the Quarter Horse Association, American Quarter Horse Association. And in 46, 47, and 48, they were going around inspecting horses to see if they would give them papers to be a quarter horse. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how mixed up the quarter horse breed was at that time. But Mr. Vessels was a very responsible human being. And uh, when he put together the Los Alamitos organization, uh, Farrell W. Jones was uh, part of it, and they they really wanted to do the right thing, in my opinion. And uh, it was Dr. Bird and and other doctors at that time, Wheat, etc., that um, were my early learning curve, if you will, and. Uh, Boy, do I know how important it is to have horses clean of those internal parasites. They will put a stop to a freight train. Mm. It's very true, and certainly with the resistance, it's very difficult because most of my clients used to say, well, all my veterinarians just tell me, just go ahead and deworm them. But recently we found out that you didn't know whether it really helped or not because a lot of times, more recently, since around 2000, we've found that the resistance has really uh, been a problem. And in fact, I say that since about 1950, when we first started really worming horses, that we've been actually selectively breeding them for resistance. Yeah. Breeding yeah. the parasites for resistance. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we're seeing that same thing in the viruses today, my word, uh, what's got us all home. Uh, this resistance thing and uh, morphing, if you will, is is really diabolical in our efforts to keep horses clean. Right, and the fact that what we did with the dewormer was we killed off a lot of, almost all the sensitive ones, but there was a few of each population which were resistant. And we kept killing off the sensitive ones, leaving the resistant ones to mate with the resistant ones. 
and produce more resistant ones to the point where, in many cases, uh, the population on some farms and some stables of certainly um, small strongyles now, which are one of the major uh, parasites of older horses, uh, major part of the population now has become resistant to many of our medications. Yeah, and Dr. Bird, I think you'd find it interesting. I don't know whether you've been in this particular area or not, but um, uh, in uh, of this science, but um, the mustangs that are gathered at three, four, and five years of age have been loaded with internal parasites for the entire time they've been on Earth because nobody was around to worm them at that time. And once you go and you adopt one of these Mustangs, uh, you take it home and hit it with a normal uh, load of uh, anthelmintics or worm medicine, and you're apt to lose him. And uh, many of these Mustangs are so loaded with internal parasites that you kill off so many because they haven't been resistant so much because of the lack of medication that they've had. And you kill off so many, the next thing you know, they're on the floor with a high temperature and it's horrible. All my Mustangs that come through, we do 25% four times in about four months and then we start to increase it. Um, and gradually dewarm them. Right. I haven't dealt much with Mustangs, that's for sure. But it's interesting. I have a small boarding stable, and I have one here. And uh, interestingly enough, she hardly ever needs to be dewormed because she never has any eggs in her samples. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So that was one of the things that I wanted you to talk about, uh, because we do know that resistance, Dr. Bird, is a problem, and we've been perpetuating that problem for a long time. So you at Horseman's Lab, what what's your philosophy on worming? Because we all want to do right by our horses. Well, I think it's not just my philosophy. I kind of follow Dr. My, um, Martin Nielsen at the University of Kentucky because he's from Denmark and he's done a lot of research in, on this and in fact he has uh, originally was in Denmark and it's interesting as I understand it Denmark actually has a law that you're supposed to not deworm your horse unless you find evidence that it needs it and the philosophy that they have been going by now is doing stool samples on horses and checking them to see which horses need to be dewormed and only deworming those horses. Like we used to, when I first got out of vet school way back in 1970, they always recommended, and a lot of veterinarians still do, deworm all the horses on the farm at the same time. And the philosophy now is they've divided it up. When you do a stool sample to horses that are in low, medium, or high shedding ranges for um, strongyle eggs and it's mostly small strongyles at this point and you only deworm the low horses or the negative ones once a year and medium uh, horses tw two to three times and high horses that are shedding a great deal of eggs over 500 eggs per gram uh, they recommend deworming uh, four times a year now we 
I set this up a long time before we ever thought about resistance. I started doing stool samples in 1991 when I was in uh, Orange County, California, because I felt we were deworming horses way more than they needed to be. I was, most of my clients, we were deworming their horses every two months. Plus in 91 was when that uh, daily dewormer came out. Mm. where they were going to feed them every day de uh, deworming medication. And I thought that was way too much. So I started on my own as an experiment, just checking the horses I was deworming before I dewormed them. And I found that less than one out of 20 horses in my clients uh, there in Orange County, uh, less than one out of 20 of them were passing any eggs to indicate they were infected. And yet we were worming them every two months and they wanted to give them a daily dewormer on top of that. Yeah. So we started back then doing this, and I talked to a couple of doctors at the University of Kentucky that uh, were parasitologists and asked them why nobody ever started checking horses rather than just deworming all the time. And they said, well, this was handier just to go out once and deworm them and not worry about whether they had them or not. Okay. Right. And yeah. that's really what caused the fact that created uh, resistance was there again. With the daily dewormer, we're killing the sensitive ones every day, leaving the resistant ones to mate with each other. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. really the medications now that have the main resistance is uh, uh, fenbenazoles and the parental pamates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so your process is to get the fecal count to to, to yes. um, yeah, and then adjust your wormer to that particular kind yeah. of. Yes, because what we have found over the time, we've done over 120,000 samples here now, and uh, and with research that they've done, uh, Dr. Reinmeier and Dr. Dielson, who wrote the book on handbook on parasite control in horses, which is the newest parasite book uh, out, uh, they found, as most places, 80% of the worms or infective larvae that are placed in the pasture are put, are put there by 20% of the horses. Mm. So there, uh, almost 80% of the horses that are in a pasture don't need to be dewormed nearly as often as we've been deworming them. Uh, because uh, we have, and we've found this so many times, and people always thought, you know, if one horse in the pasture had a lot of eggs, they all do. And that's just not the case. Back in the 60s, there was a doctor by the name of Dr. Hurd at the University of Ohio, and he did an experiment where he put 20 horses in a pasture and checked them every month and found out that some horses in that pasture uh, would have very high egg counts, and he would deworm all the horses that had a high egg count, and others would have very low to no eggs in their stool. And over yeah. the year the same horses continued to not have eggs in their stool or very low counts and others continued to be always high when he went to check them or were high within a couple of months of deworming. So that's where this came up. And they found that, uh, like I say, 20% of the horses in the pasture are probably producing 80% of the contamination, which uh, means we only have to worm those 20% that are producing all the eggs. So what, what's, explanation dr bird for the reason are, are some horses healthier than others and and can fight off worms why, why would there be a disproportionate amount well it's not necessarily the health it seems like it's their immune system for some reason some horses 
recognize the parasites as being a foreign substance and do kill them off somewhere. They don't really understand where this takes place, but, uh, you know, the strongyles and the roundworms migrate through the body of the horse, and I, I'm fairly confident that the immune system, somewhere along the line, um, attacks these larvae. For instance, in foals and even weanlings, yearlings, you know, they always have a high round uh, worm egg count. And uh, But as the horses get older, two, three years old, the egg count for roundworms really go down in them without even deworming them for the uh, roundworms. And by the time they're four or five, we hardly ever find any horses with roundworms in their system. So we know that the immune system is the only thing that really can control that, mm-hmm. it would appear. And That's, so we know that they build build an immunity. And so some horses seem to build an immunity to the strongyle larva as well, because now the small strongyle larva all have to become insisted in the lining of the intestine, and they spend two or three weeks there, up to two years and uh, then come out of their cysts and become adults and start laying eggs. And I think that's most likely where the immune system really affects the life cycle. Now, some Mm -hmm. people say, well, it's in the intestine, but I just, I don't see it. I don't do a lot of research. I I, I didn't get into it in the research phase, So, but they still haven't really, I talked to Dr. Nielsen a few months ago about this, and they really don't know where the immune system in these horses that are protecting themselves where they really attack the worms but for some reason they don't Mm. the other thing that some people feel is if you know in most pastures you'll have what we call rough areas and you'll have uh, lawn areas where the horses pass all their stool or the rough areas and the grass grows up and looks good and green and everything but the horses most of the horses never eat that grass but then uh, that's where most of the eggs and infective larvae are because the larvae, once they hatch from the egg, it takes about, uh, depending on the temperature and the moisture and stuff, anywhere from one day to five or six days before that egg hatches and the larvae go through their stages to develop. Once they develop into the infective stage, which is a stage where they have a coating, and I re- to it kind of like a snake that grows you know they have that skin that always sloughs Mm. off these larvae they get a skin kind of the same way that protects them so they can pass through the digestive tract the stomach of the horse and not destroyed and then when they get through into the small intestine they they shed that skin and they burrow into the lining of the intestine and that's where they live so they don't the infective larvae only go about a foot and a half from the horse's stool that they were passed in. Mm-hmm. Unless unless we get involved and go out there and mow the pasture or drag the pasture, which I still have a hard time myself not wanting to go out and drag my pasture sometimes to spread that manure around. And it's fine if you do it when it's really hot and dry. But if you do it when it's moist and there's dew on the ground and that sort of thing, what happens is you spread those infected larvae all over the pasture so the horse can't avoid eating them. And that that's one of the things they recommend, and they found it really be almost as 
good as deworming the horses if you have a routine where you clean your pastures about every two or three days. Now, I know that sounds like a lot of work, but mainly you only have to clean the areas that are the rough areas. You don't have mm-hmm. to clean the whole pasture because that's where the eggs are concentrated and the infective larvae are concentrated in those rough areas. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know that a lot of people know that, um, that, you know, maybe just board their horses and, and right. they do spend some time on some pastures. Are, are there kinds of grasses that more are more prone um, to the horse picking up the worms than other kinds of grasses? Or are there soils that are more conducive to worms surviving than others? And not that we can necessarily um, prevent that, but we might be heads up about it. Well, I haven't found anything in the literature about that situation. Um, You know, but that's not to say it's not out there, but I don't think they've done a lot of research on that, which would be good to know. Uh, but it's a basically, and in fact, uh, picking up the pastures, they make equipment now for bigger farms and stuff that actually go up, go through the pasture. You can go through the pasture and sweep up your manure or picks it all up. Uh, and you can do that every three or four days. Like I say, it depends on mm-hmm. where you're at as far as the temperature and moisture, how quickly these eggs hatch. Sometimes they'll hatch in 24 hours and it'll only take them a day or so but most of the time it takes at least two to three days for the larva to reach the infective stage and they stay in the manure pile the pile that they're passed in until they reach the infective stage and then they leave the manure pile and get it on the grass and are eaten by the horse yeah yeah interesting i've got got some information for you on that score and it's very interesting to listen to you, Dr. Bird. Um, Queen Elizabeth II has a very strong opinion on this, and um, she has her babies growing up on a place called Polehampton in the south of England. And I'm here to tell you, I spend some time there, and the team that's there of about seven people spend roughly 50% of their time running these large vacuum cleaners that um, take up the piles in those rough areas. And it is true that if you keep that area clean, they will keep using that area. If you don't keep it clean, they'll tend to widen the area. But if you pick it up, they will go back there and keep using that area uh, more and more. And uh, Her Majesty believes that we got to get that out of there and and get it in a pile somewhere away from the horses and go through the process of creating uh, mulch. And uh, people take it off to mix with uh, other factors, uh, ground trees and stuff, to make compost for uh, for their bags. Right. And um, it, it's expensive to do it that way, but it's knowing the process that her majesty has decided that she wants to, to do uh, as much as she can to keep it, keep the worms out of them. And then yeah. the, I've done a study on the uh, on species within the pastures. And I have found pretty clear evidence that the lower going legumes 
are easier for the worms to process their migratory system and uh, end up in a hoard than are the tall grassy ones um, which reach up and hit the sun more often. Um, but bird's foot trefoil grows right on the ground and it's a very good feed if it's clean, but it does, it does provide a home for the larva and, uh, and, and can be a problem. Ladino clover can do the same. It's pretty low growing and it can do the same. Alfalfa jumps up. It's a legume but it jumps up and, and uh, shows itself to the sun more and tends to reduce it. But I'm a big fan of Acaroa orchard grass. It's not too coarse and it's not too fine and it's not low growing. It tends to grow in a bunch up high and uh, show itself to the sun. And it seems to me that it, it provides a home for the growing worms far less than the legumes do. Yeah, I think that's probably true because they do claim that most of the infective larvae will never get up over three or four inches on the grass. Right. They generally stay in the shorter area. And that may be because it seems like they will crawl up on the grass to that length. And then when it starts, the sun really hits them and it starts to dry out, they will actually go back down to where it's more moist or shaded. Because right. they will burn up their energy and they can't feed while they're in the infective stage. So anything that causes them more to metabolism more, which heat does, why it will cause them to use up their energy and die, actually. Yeah, and I, I advise people here in California to top dress with, per, uh, with annual rye, mm-hmm. um, you know, once a year during our uh, growing seasons so that, uh, the annual rye just grows in one year and dies, but it provides high food, uh, for the horse. That is to say elevated food off the ground and, uh, keeps the horse from digging down into the lower reaches where the larvae seem to be far more concentrated. Yes, that would be, I think a good idea. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I, oh I had gosh. good luck with that. This is this is really good for people to know. I, I, I'm so glad I got you two together. This is so great. And a crazy time to actually be recording this, too, because uh, time will and history will show that this is during the time of the coronavirus. And, and we are still in the quarantine lockdown in California. I imagine you are, too, in Illinois. Is that right, Dr. Bird? Yes. Yeah. Yes, we are. Yeah. Yep. And uh, and ivermectin comes up uh, in in right. the news, which you don't usually hear on ABC or CBS or NBC. But uh, so a lot of horse people perk their ears up at uh, hearing ivermectin in in the same conversation as the coronavirus. Uh, is, is there any uh, credibility to the fact that we're going to be joining our horses in the worming process? Well, I have no knowledge of that, certainly other than what <laughs> see on TV, but I did kind of research a little, and I see that there's a group in Australia that are doing the research to see, and I guess, uh, you know, in uh, their studies and their experiments, uh, they found that uh, it does seem to stop the virus from replicating in the Petri dish, but I don't know that anybody's really tried it in people, but of course, you know, ivermectin, as I understand it, 
is quite widely used in other countries in people for parasites because mm -hmm. you go to Africa, India, some of those places where people suffer from a lot of different parasites, ivermectin is, as I understand it, one of the main things that they use to control them in humans. But uh, yeah. Dr. Bird, I would ask you, since we have an audience on this phone right now um, that love their horses, and typically this audience cares for their horses, they're not a lot of them are not professionals that ask a horse for their life every day, uh, but they, they love their horses. And is there some way that they can read about your findings and stay posted with the things that you do and recommend? Um, is there some sort of publication that you do? Well, anytime we publish any articles or anything like that, they're placed on our website and on our blog, which is horsemen's lab.com there you are and, uh, they can go there and they can see what we do and see what we offer and they can if they want to have their samples done they can uh order them right there we send them a little container that they pack full now one thing that i will tell you that we found is interesting because when i started this i was concerned because everybody said you couldn't send the samples through the mail that they would all disintegrate and be gone before they got to us. But what we found was kind of interesting. And again, I credit Dr. Nielsen because he explained this to me. When I first started, I had these people sending me samples and some of the samples, there would be larvae that were in the solution when we started to count them, count the eggs. And a lot of the eggs would be embryonated. And so I, at first, even before I really started, I looked around to try to find a way to preserve the sample. Couldn't find any, so I went ahead and started. And um, I found this phenomena that, you know, they'd all come in the same envelope, so they were all exposed to the same environment. And yet, some of the samples, the eggs would be hatched. Some of the samples, the eggs, there might be some, some that were hatched, some that were embryonated. And so when I first met Dr. Nielsen, we were talking one day and I asked him about that. And he said, well, I said, I thought maybe because there's like 40 different species of small strongiles, depending on what book you read and when you read it, because it seems like they're finding more or whatever. I said, do they really hatch out at different times? I thought maybe certain species of eggs would hatch sooner than others. And he said, no, the reason I think it's for it is the fact that the eggs need oxygen in order to develop an yep. embryonate and hatch. And he yep. said, if you pack the little container really firmly full um, and clip the, which we recommend is close the lid, uh, they won't hatch. And sure enough, we started really recommending that very strongly to our clients. And we hardly ever see any embryonated eggs unless the people don't read the directions on our little containers <laughs> that tell them they need to fill it completely. And when they're packed in there, uh, they can take two weeks sometimes in the mail and still the eggs look like they were just passed from the horse. Mm. Well, there you are. That's a very good tip for people. And I'm glad you gave them that address because they can now stay hooked up as to what to do next. And you can make your recommendations to them, uh, or you will make recommendations to them. And uh, yeah. they will hopefully 
follow your instructions. Mm, perfect. And we also, uh, you know, any articles that we find or read about that are printed about parasite control, uh, some of them are, we feel, can be off base like everything, but ones that we feel are following, and mainly I kind of follow, like I say, the guidelines from Dr. Nielsen, Dr. Reinmeier. Dr. Reinmeier received a PhD from uh, Ohio State in uh, parasitology, and he has his own laboratory that he does drug testing and stuff, and he's very knowledgeable and speaks a lot on parasites around the country, and I think that he's um, very good, and so is Dr. Nielsen. And so we try to follow their recommendations and what they find. You know, it's like the coronavirus, too. Uh, all the different research they do, it's changing on what their recommendations are somewhat because yeah. they find new things that are happening or different things than they thought were happening. And so you have to kind of keep this is kind of something that's, uh, you know, changing all the time. It's not something people still think I get things just like now I got a big thing on my Facebook page where we had a an article and says, why don't we just continue with the deworming and rotation? Well, they found that that's one of the things that's really creating the resistance. Yeah. There's a reason we can't continue that. But yeah. it's hard. To, it's, it's like your business, I'm sure. It's difficult to educate the people when they've been doing something for 40 years or something <laughs> to change. 6,000 oh, years. <laughs> it's that's really the truth. Exactly. Well, thank you. This has been hugely informative. I, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate both of you being on today for this, too. And um, I hope people will uh, take you up on that and and take it to heart about this. Um, I think we're understanding a lot more about viruses and and uh, and ways to medicate or over medicate that are not good, too. So I, I appreciate that there's brilliant minds out there like yours working on this, Dr. Bird. Thank you. Well, I've got some new thoughts from it. And I thank you, Dr. Bird. Kavala Horse and Rider offers a wide range of innovative products that provide comfort, protection, support, and value for you and your horse. Kavala's easy-to-use, economical, and effective hoof boots are available in three styles and six sizes to fit your horse's hooves and your riding style. Kavala's got your back, too, with their Total Comfort System saddle pads for English, Western, and Tucker saddles. Look for Cavallo's simple, sport, and trek hoof boots and saddle pads at your local tax store, or you can visit them online at cavallo-inc.com. Philip Rawls was born in Ojai, California, raised around horses, and was brought up in the horse show industry. Philip's dad, Ron Rawls, is also a horse trader, and Philip began showing when he was only 11 years old. He began his own training business when he was 20 years old. And in 2009 and 2011, Philip was the National Stock Horse Open Futurity Reserve Champion. 2011, he was the NRCHA Open Hackamore Reserve Champion. The NRCHA Stallion Stakes finalist top five, and this young man was a multiple NRCHA Snaffle Bit Fraternity finalist 
Well, welcome. I've got Philip Rawls and Monty Roberts, generational champions on the phone, and I'm really glad to have you both visiting. Both of you are in California, correct? Philip? Yes, we are. Yeah. We're and, both in California, and yet being 60 or 70 miles apart, I haven't seen Philip in about three years or something. It's, <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't make any excuses, but it seems to me like we ought to have rules where we always take a couple of months off and just live with our horses and meet our friends again. I agree. I think that's a wonderful idea. Social distancing, taking this to the extremes, aren't we? Yeah. (laughs) We got to get you guys back together. I think that's wonderful. Actually, I've heard that from a couple of people is that it's been a healthy break for people with their horses that you really can't go anywhere. You can't, you know, compete. You can't do it. And it gives you an opportunity to think about doing something else with your horses right now. And maybe it's a time to to uh, work on some things that you don't have that much time for. I don't know, Philip, what are you doing at home right now? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine for the last, I mean, almost 15 years now. I mean, I cannot remember not being gone you know, three quarters of the year showing, you know, and so, um, it's, it's been really refreshing to kind of have a little bit of a break and, um, you know, we've been able to do a lot more stuff around home. And I mean, I've been doing, you know, taking these horses and being able to go out and ride outside a bunch. And my wife's family has um, property here outside of Shandon. And so we're able to kind of get all these colts that normally, you know, would be, getting hauled to the shows and going and getting seasoned that way and kind of season them in different ways and going and gathering cattle and staying outside and being able to spend a lot of good, good quality time on our two-year-olds right now, which has been, been really fun. We're, you know, we've been promoting, um, you know, call me Mitch for the last few years, and this is kind of his first two crops of babies. So um, that's been, that's been really nice to actually have all the extra time at home to be able to, kind of sift through and, and see what we've got. And, um, yeah, it's been really good. It's been, it's been a nice break for the family too, you know, I mean, especially with, with two young kids, you know, we've been hauling them up and down the road to every horse show all over the United States for the last several years. And, um, it's, it's been really nice to uh, be able to, you know, step back and, and, just do the little things around home, which, you know, we don't need to go to town very often. So that's, that's nice, but, uh, we've been building, building gardens and doing all kinds of stuff. I mean, awesome. we do all the stuff that you don't have time to do normally because we're home so little. Yeah. I love that you're growing a garden. That's great. I think I saw a wonderful article. I didn't get to read it all yet. I just, just noticed it across the wire in the quarter horse journal. Kirsten Aguimuller just wrote on you and call me Mitch. Speaking of Mitch, um, yeah. and yeah, tell us about that. That that looked pretty cool. Yeah, you know, um, we haven't got the translated version, so I, I oh, don't know exactly okay. what all is in it. But um, we've known we've known Kristen for oh, several years now. She's um, the first year, three years ago, when I showed Mitch there the first time. I had met her and her husband and, um, you know, and got acquainted with them. And then we've seen them there at the world show and during world's greatest each year. Um, and it's been, they're, they're really nice people. And, um, they, I believe that was published in, in Germany. Um, and so it's, it's kind of fun to have, 
you know, um, you know, that, that horse generates a lot of fans and a lot of publicity just in general, just cause he's, you know, pretty special, unique horse. Um, and he's got quite the fan base all over the world. So it's, uh, it's fun meeting people, um, you know, that, that have followed him and, and, you know, they love to write about him. And so it's, you know, we try to do what we can do. I mean, at the time we're at those shows, we're getting him out and they're taking pictures with him and they're okay. doing, you know, all kinds of stuff, you know, and mm-hmm. it has uh, been, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. So you're still showing him and you're still getting him out. He's, he's shown and trained by Philip Ross. I mean, that's big yeah, stuff. You know, it was, he's been, a, he's been a special horse. We bought him as a yearling and, um, and trained him and showed him and, and have had a lot of success, um, you know, across the board. And, um, you know, now he's kind of transitioning, um, more into, you know, his breeding season has gotten very busy. Um, so, you know, we won't be showing him, we have been showing him during breeding season the last couple of years, just to kind of keep him out there. Um, but I think once breeding season's done, um, you know, there's, uh, there's a few shows here towards the end of the year. You know, I don't, I don't know if we're still going to get to have it or not, but we were kind of slated to go to that run for the million. It's a hundred thousand dollar bridal class there for, um, um, in Vegas at the end of July. Um, so that's kind of, that's a pretty exciting event. So hopefully they're going to still have that. Um, but if not, you know, we're going to cut on him a little bit more and just kind of keep, keep getting him out there you know i mean he's sound and healthy and he loves to go show and so i think that's kind of special as far as you know a lot of those horses you know they they jump up and win something and then retire them you know and i I think it's kind of a testament to him and just his being good-minded and and liking his job you know and he can keep keep showing at a high level you know so um, but but he's he's done plenty he doesn't know us nothing yeah. No, but it's fun that you're having fun still, too. And I'm hoping that some of those shows as we speak, this is uh, almost May uh, of the coronavirus quarantine. And some shows are uh, talking about going virtual, which would be fun. I, I know people are dying to see horse shows again and see, you know, horses again. And so I'm hoping that, that maybe that will be a uh, performance only, you know, and, and what web streaming or something so that we can see you because we'd love to see you out there having some fun but um, yeah absolutely i don't know dad when's the last time you got to see philip ride a horse why well, like i said i think it was about three years, three years ago yeah. um or something i went to pass a robot and i uh visited with philip a little bit up there not as much as i would like to uh, philip was raised on this farm and and was with us 20 odd years here and uh yes i know he traveled a lot and showed a lot i read about it and and hear about it and all that stuff because uh pat has a horse called blackie she calls him blackie his real name is black design (laughs) and uh, philip did all the early work on him and i know that philip traveled a lot but you talk about me being home uh um, for 31 years, I've traveled over 100,000 miles a year to 41 different countries. And to be locked in here has, uh, you know, two distinct directions. I'm having a lot of fun learning more from my horses every day. At 85 years old, I I sincerely tell you that the last three years have been the learningest years of my life. And uh, just this last month or so, 
there are some things that I learned that I, I sincerely believe. I wish I could visit with Ron and Philip uh, about them because there, there's some really interesting things that I've learned. And also with my deer, they are the flightiest animals on earth and horses are a flight animal. So they share the same responses to our work. And I think Philip would agree to me that when we finish this, whatever, six months or something of riding our horses more and staying home, the ones that are riding well and treating their horses right, you're going to see a lot more 76s, <laughs> 77s. The ones that ride badly and make mistakes, you're going to see a lot more 69s because they're spending too much time on them doing the wrong thing. <laughs> but it's going to be a greater spread. I tell you, you watch it now. It's going to be a greater spread because those people that are talented and have learned the, the right things, they're going to up their product by about two or three points. And those that haven't learned well are going to reduce their product with time they spent uh, negatively. Mm -hmm. That's my story. And I'm sticking to it. <laughs> and, uh, I got to get I got to get to see Philip more often. Uh, he's such a representative. He and Zane Davis, and even Jason Davis and Ron Rawls. I mean, they, they are my heroes. They spent their time here. They were on the road with me or whatever. Uh, I, I just it's a family. Mm. Yeah, well, we we certainly appreciate it, and and we know where we came from too, you know, and and I think. I think for me, you know, it's a, you know, I've, I've been, I've been very fortunate to have really good horsemen in my life, you know, through the whole process, every step of the way from my dad to you, Harold Farron. I mean, and people that took the time to give you an opportunity and took the time to help you, you know, work through stuff. And, you know, that, that I'm now, you know, I've had lots of different people work for me, but it's like, I've, I've got a guy that's working for me now that I've really had a lot of fun with and, and he's, and he's doing such a good job on, on my young horses and coming along and he's just re reminds me a lot of that same, you know, hunger for information that I felt like I had, you know, wanting to get better and wanting to learn. And each day you coming out and you're seeing him, you're seeing him, putting the work in and, and getting it put together and, and really starting to like these cults are responding to him really well. And he's starting to really, you know, move, move these horses up in a really positive direction. And, and you can see him gaining confidence too, because it's not, uh, it's not about what you're doing wrong. It's about what you're, you know, that, that what you're doing right. And, and the information that you're getting in there that will last, you know, forever with these cults. So, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's you know, really, uh, it's really important to have those doors open for you though, early on, you know, and I, I try to do my best to, to give people opportunities, even if they don't necessarily have the resume to just give them an opportunity and let them, let them prove themselves, you know, and, and it's been, it's been, it's been rewarding for me doing that. I've, we've had a ball and just talking about all the different stuff that we used to do from, you know, horse race horses that had come back from the track to our yeah. show horses to just all the, all the horses we were starting there every year. It's like, I, I got, I got 25 years of education, you know, in, in 10 years of starting Colts there, you know, just from, just from being able to do it so much. So it was, it was great. 
Yeah, and you, you've got two guys looking down on you, Philip, rooting for you and recognizing the incredible uplift, upward curve in knowing what to do with horses. And Harold Farron is right there on some cloud somewhere looking down proud of you. Mm-hmm. And so is your uncle. Um, yep, absolutely. You know, yeah. Van yeah. was such a fan of yours and uh, very Van Snow uh, was an outstanding, maybe one of the best equine veterinarians ever to live and uh, decided that he wanted to have a hobby of flying racing airplanes and crashed and killed himself. And, <laughs> and um, it, w- it was a big loss for all of us. And, uh, Ron, <laughs> it's just unbelievable for him to go at 28 years of age. It's the first time I ever saw him. And he had a, a saddle with a candle that came right up between his shoulder blades, <laughs> center fire, and off he would go and he could ride and get home on anything you sent him out on. But to go show one, boy, that was a long way from what. Ron Rawls would do, and then look from 28 to something like 38 or 40, he moves to win two or three world championships and almost a million dollars. It's it's so pride-making. It's a real family. Yeah, no, it's definitely, definitely big shoes to fill all the way around, you know, and I think, I think that, you know, like just teaching, teaching the next generation, which I saw a video the other day of, uh, of Jason's son starting his first cult the other day. And (laughs) it it amazes it. Time flies. It's so fast, you know, it doesn't seem old enough yet, but, um, you know, just seeing that and just remembering back, you know, all the, all the fun stuff that Jason and I did there and the fun projects we had and, from the Mustangs to the racehorses to all the different stuff. I mean, I I find myself, I find myself reminiscing all the time about all all the great opportunities that we had to, to learn, you know? And so it's, it's been, uh, it's been really good. Well, they can say what they want, um, Philip, but I think that the working cow horse taught me more about what to do with racehorses than any other discipline that you can name. Uh, because you're asking a horse to want to do it Mm -hmm. and they've got to show that they want to do it, or you don't get the 76 that you need. You get a Mm -hmm. 69, 70 and many racehorses are just doing it because they're afraid not to do it. Mm -hmm. And if the racehorse wants to do it, he will beat the horse that doesn't want to do it. Yep. Yeah. Philip, I'm so Yeah, it, it de- well, in any discipline, but you really see it in the pure racehorse because there's very little other than racing um, and running really fast that they do. Um, and it's a much more complicated bis- business in the Western reining and, and uh, cow horse world. But I know at one point, I'm so glad that you decided to stay in it. There's a lot of people that second and third generation that do leave the industry. And it's a real shame because, as you say, there's this layers and layers of of uh, education that's been, you know, given to you by by all these geniuses out there, these champions. And I'm, you know, what was that pivot moment in your generation that where you decided to stay with the 
with the industry instead of you can do a lot of things. You're a bright guy. You could have done a lot of Boy, things. Boy, I was there. I was there, Philip. Yeah. No, I know. I mean, for for me, I felt like, you know, there was, you know, you. I, I was working really hard to try to step up to that next level. And I, I felt like I was a little bit, you know, I, I had a point there where, you know, my horses were broke and, you know, I felt like I was, you know, showing confidently and just not really necessarily knowing how to get to the next, to the next level, you know, and, and, you know, you feel like you're, you know, you kind of get at that spot where you're like, man, am, am, am I just here or is there, is there another level to this? And so you go to picking brains and you go to talking to, you know, Monty, talking to Harold, talking to my dad and just saying, Hey, let's, let's break it down again and, you know, work out, figure it out like that. I think that's the thing for me is that, that as always, even, even you go through those peaks and valleys just in general, um, that you, uh, that you're always questioning yourself. Cause if you're not questioning yourself, you're not, you're not asking, you know what I mean? You're not asking the right questions in general of like, how can I do this better? What do I need to do here? How can I improve this? You know, and sometimes, sometimes it's horsepower, but 98% of the time it's us. And there's, you can dissect it down and Charlotte Bernal helped me around there working on my riding and just going back to basics and working on it again. And then, and then you start feeling the improvement come. And I remember Monty talking to me about, you know, I think I was running and, and stopping a horse and he was asking me why I was leaning in my right stirrup. And I'm just like, I don't even know that I'm doing it, you know? So little things where you're having trouble with it, you know, you start breaking it down and you start seeing light at the tunnel. Like you're like, Hey, well, I just need to, you know what I mean? Keep reevaluating and keep working. And, and that to me, that's got, it's kind of an addiction because you keep feeling like you're getting better and you can't wait for your next, your next horse, your next horse show. You know, you keep, when you get that little bit of gratification of, of teaching that horse to do it a little better. And then you go to the show and he performs for you. And like, to me, like all the hard work you, you go there and you're able to actually show your horse, show you, show him off. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of pride taken in that, you know, I mean, and you take Boy, your work these, and you go to the show. <laughs> the, these words, Philip are so gratifying to me because there was a time when you and your mother and I sat down in my kitchen and there was a conversation about going back to school and learning more of something else and getting out of this business of needing a big score from some judge that uh, wasn't giving it to you. And I recall so vividly that I'm, I'm all for education and I just didn't want education to change you from your dream of winning championships. And I said, Philip, you can't see it. I have an overall view and you're so close. You need a point or two. You're going to be there in the hunt of the best contests on the face of this earth. And, uh, you walked out of that room and I guess you considered it and then made a decision to stay with it. And boy, I couldn't be prouder of you for it. And I know your mother was also concerned and 
sure, she wants her son to be a success wherever he goes, but I think she was in favor of you continuing this effort that you're on now. Yeah, no, I remember I remember the conversation well, you know, and I and I think I think a person like for me, you know, I rode can trial and error a lot of stuff and then and then, you know, I think your outlook on 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 what you're doing and the and the pressure that people that you put on yourself to, to win something, you know, it, it eats you up at times, you know what I mean? To where you just it's such a roller coaster and, and when it's when it when you're close but you're not getting it over and over and over, you know what I mean? Sometimes you start to question whether you're you know what I mean, whether you got it or not, you know? Um Yeah. And and so I think I think sometimes, you know, like when you're in that, like it's important it's important to have conversations like that and then have that like, hey, you're there, just keep keep grinding it out, you know, and let's let's keep rolling on, you know, and you're like, yeah, well, of course, because it's like, I can't, I couldn't get away from riding horses when I, you know, when, when I don't have to ride horses, I ride horses, you know, because I love it. And, you know, and, and like having John here and, and working with that, you know, um, and teaching the next generation and being, I get a lot of fulfillment out of that as well, because you can see their excitement from them learning. And I remember me doing the same thing. And it's just like, I can, I remember vividly like, oh, well, I used to start cults like this. And then, you know, and then, uh, you know, I learned about driving. I took that to the next level. And then I learned about the next thing. And then I had Harold involved and, you know, coming and helping me. And, you know, and and Charlotte, you know, constant conversations, you know, it just keeps, you'll never, you'll never reach the end, which I love, you know, like I don't feel like you ever, you know, you never, you never quit learning, you know? So it's, uh, it's, it's constantly challenging you every day. So yeah, and- I was telling stories the other day just about being down, being down at flag is up. And it's just, I, I just remember when, you know, going through those horses and having the horses that we were able to go down the road and show and, and do all that. And, you know, with, yeah. with really, you know, I mean, that, that was, that was the, that was the start of, you know, the whole deal, you know, I mean, I'd rode a lot of colts, but actually training horses for myself and the public and you guys and doing all that and putting up with all my mistakes. And, you know, it was, it was, you know, life changing for us. Cause now I get to do what I love to do every day. So and now yeah. I get to get my kids involved in it and it's, it's yeah. great. And having you and Zane, ah, and Van here at the same time, along with Ron, uh, it, it was, I, I have to look back on it to realize how much fun it was. Uh, and I should have realized it more when it was happening because it was truly the building of champions. Boy, when you think about it, I mean, there's a lot of talent wrapped up in that story. Mm, yeah. Well, Philip, I, I've kept you guys a long time. I really appreciate your time together, and it was good. You guys could catch up a little bit, too, and that, that's part of the reason for this call, too. Um, but I, I know that your website, I'm going to put a plug in for you if you if you can't remember it, but it's, it's philiprawlsperformancehorses.com, and I want people to go there and it, admire it. Great website. It's a great Facebook page that you have too, and you put a lot of tips up there, and you do a lot of things that trainers don't always do. You're very open about it, and it's just a beautiful country too that you share photos of you and your family with. And uh, I think people should get to know you. 
Um, you're an amazing yeah, horseman, well, I, an amazing dad. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate it, and it's my my wife is uh, is directly responsible for for Good. all of our <laughs> advertisement and stuff, and she does a great job with all of it. And and you know, I feel like this, you know, our family, cow horse family, you know, with extended family to everybody that that we've been involved with, it's um, you know, it's everybody's kind of going through some trying times right now with this whole coronavirus business, but, uh, you know, you really, you really see how everybody pulls together and, you know, and, and, and like, I feel like my wife really, really reaches out and, and puts a lot of extra effort and, and into letting people in on a lot of insight to the behind the scenes stuff that a lot of people don't know about, you know, and we take it for granted because we're doing it every day. You don't really think about it, but, um, she always puts a lot of great content on there and cool pictures and it's always, it's always fun. We get a lot of great feedback from it. So, and I know she takes a lot of pride in it. Good. Well, thank her for us. That's, that's great. Yeah. You can certainly finish this off by my saying that if, if you want a champion working cow horse, you could go to Philip Rawls and have the best chance to get one. I tell you, he's, he's doing the job. Whisper the language of the herd. Listen, you don't have to say a word. It's time for Jamie Jennings to fetch an email from Monty Roberts' inbox and share a morsel of Monty's wisdom in a little segment we like to call Ask Monty. Leave this world a better place than mine. The magic in the language of the G'day, Monty. After many years with horses, I'm just beginning my journey with JoinUp. My past practices have been more organic with a bit of information from here and a bit from there. I'm bringing a stallion, 14 years of age, back into work after eight or more years and was wondering if you considered stallions any more of a challenge to get JoinUp. He is a kind boy, cutting, bred, and trained by his breeder as a young horse, but I've never ridden him before and would like to get him to join up as part of my process. Currently, time and finances don't allow me to join your study program as much as I would like to. Finding myself now widowed and having to cull all but our breeding stallions in one mare, I would like to get back in the saddle for myself and my late husband. Regards, Fiona. Monty's answer. Dear Fiona, congratulations on all fronts. Your stallion probably has several years to enjoy working with you. Unless he is aggressive, then join-up should be no different than from the young horses. I advise students all the time that this is their, the horse's language. It is their procedure, and it is a fact that I learned it from them. I am sorry about your loss, but proud of you for choosing to explore the world of horse-human partnerships. For more of these insights into good horsemanship, go to MontyRoberts.com and click on the words Ask Monty at the bottom of the page. Hi, I'm Monty Roberts, and I'm dedicated to training horses without pain. You can learn to do it, too, on my Equus Online University. Western, English, the beginner, or the advanced rider. It doesn't matter. You can connect with other students online, too on our forum, and there's a new lesson every week. It's a lifetime of learning for you on my Equus Online University at MontyRoberts.com. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts?
Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged. June 21 through 23, 2020, is with Monty Roberts, Temple Grandin, Rick Lamb, and lots of other presenters at The Movement, themovement2020.com. June 29th through July 3, then we have Monty Special Training Brazil. And July 24 through 26, we have another Horse Sense and Healing for our veterans and first responders. Yay. And August 3 through 7, we have Monty Special Training, our annual big course, five days with Monty. And then August Farms. At Flag is at yes. Farms. That's right, Jen. And August 17th through 28th, we have our Gentling Wild Horse course. That's the one that be- people come from all over to do that one. And then September 11th through 13th, we'll reach out to Second Horse Sense and Healing this summer. And we also have on that same weekend, September 11th through 13th, we have a CHA Equine Facility Management Certification course at Flag is at Farms over three days. That's really fun. There's a lot going on at Flag is Up Farms. Always, always. Always, yep. always. And you can make a week of it, too, because Flag is Up Farms is located in Solvang, California, where it is A, beautiful, and B, a great place to visit. It is, yeah. Wine country, horses, Danish pastries. What oh, more could you want? The pastries. <laughs> oh, yes. I highly recommend it. And if you did not commit all of that to memory, we don't blame you, you can mm-hmm. go to moneyroberts.com and have and have a look at Monty's calendar yourself, or you can give them a call at Flags Up Farms. The phone number is 805-688-6288. And for details about today's show, go to horsemanshipradio.com, where you're going to find links, photos, and more information about today's guests and topics. We love your feedback. We want to hear from you. To do that, you can email folks by way of MontyRoberts.com, but you can follow them on social media. Monty Roberts on Facebook and on Twitter and Instagram. It is Monty underscore Roberts. And don't forget, you need to have all of the Horse Radio Network shows with you wherever you go using the Horse Radio Network app. The Horse Radio Network app for your Android or iPhone. Go to your app store and search. Or you can listen to us on your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Spotify, etc. That's right, etc. Is that a new one? Ah. Many thanks to our sponsors, too. <laughs> I, was, I thought maybe there was a new name. Oh, yeah, et cetera. They're all such strange names, aren't they? Like, they have weird Stitcher names. and yeah. Many, many thanks to our sponsors, too. Monty Roberts University, Cavallo Horse and Rider, and all you listeners. I really appreciate all your comments. And uh, just as Jen said, those comments make us better. I appreciate it and, and give us ideas for or new people, too. So be sure to visit all the other great shows, too, on the Horse Radio Network at www.horseradionetwork.com. Until next time, have many happy horse hours. Mm-hmm.